0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you
1: enjoy this episode. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas.
2: On the 14th of October, 1962. Photographs taken from a high-altitude U.S. spy plane had confirmed the worst fears of U.S. President John F. Kennedy and his administration. The presence of Soviet missiles in Cuba. Placed there during a mission codenamed Operation Anadir, the missiles were positioned just 90 miles away from the shores of the United States. Following their discovery, Cold War tensions between the U.S. and the Soviets skyrocketed to the brink. In our previous episode, we left John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert on the 16th of October, day one of the 13-day crisis. They were stunned and enraged after being made aware of Khrushchev and Castro's secret pact to place nuclear weapons so close to the shores of the US. Here's Mark White. Professor of History at Queen Mary London and the author of several books on the American Presidency and the Cuban Missile Crisis. He'll tell us more about the Kennedys' early response to the discovery of the missiles, which characterises the first phase of this 13 days of crisis.
3: So the missile crisis does divide into two halves. There are two weeks. There's the private secret phase, the first week, which lasts from the 16th of October to the 22nd of October. And then there's the second public phase, which lasts from the 22nd to the 28th. But in this first phase, from the 16th to the 22nd, the Kennedy administration – well, not not everyone in the Kennedy administration, just a small number of senior officials – know about the missiles in Cuba – but no one else in America does. There are two key decisions that JFK makes immediately at the start of the missile crisis. One is to keep it secret. One option would have been to, you know, give a press conference, tell the world, look, the Soviets have done this terrible thing, put missiles in Cuba. We're going to decide on our response and we'll get back to you and on. What, he, what Kennedy worried about was that if he did that, that would then give the initiative to Khrushchev, who, who could then take preemptive action. Maybe he would take action against those missiles in Turkey. Maybe he'd put pressure on West Berlin, as he had previously. And so Kennedy didn't want that to happen. He wanted to decide how he was going to respond and then announce that to the world. Uh, So so that's why the first week of the missile crisis is this private secret phase where it's just a case of JFK and his advisers mulling over the policy options. The second important decision he makes uh, straight away on the 16th is to establish a special group, called the XCOM Group, uh, E-X-C-O-M-M, uh, which stands for the Executive Committee of the National Security Council. It would be a group of senior foreign policy advisors. This group would meet every single day during the Cuban Missile Crisis and they would give JFK advice on how to handle it. And it's a very important part of the history of the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, JFK was you a know, highly intelligent man. He was well-informed on foreign policy issues. He had his view about... America's role in the world and what it should be doing, including during the missile crisis. But nevertheless, he uh, is, you know, uh, very influenced by what XCOM is saying, especially, I think, during the first week of the uh, of the crisis. What the XCOM officials uh, who met, for example, twice on the first day, on the 16th of October, in the late morning and the early evening, what they didn't know, JFK did know, was that JFK was secretly taping the meetings. He had a button under the desk, press it and it triggered a taping system. And so most of the meetings were taped. Not all of them, because part of the time JFK was away campaigning for Democrats running in the congressional elections. But most of the meetings were taped. I think he he must have told Robert Kennedy. I think Robert Kennedy would have known, but no one else did. But what it means is we have a very full, precise record of what was said in XCOM.
2: Meanwhile... As Kennedy entered into these top-secret discussions, Khrushchev was also banking on secrecy, committed to the notion that the missiles would remain undiscovered by the Americans. Let's remind ourselves of the situation on Cuba for the Soviet soldiers during that first phase. Here's William Taubman, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Amherst College in Massachusetts and author of a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Khrushchev.
1: The whole implementation of the decision to put the rockets, the missiles in Cuba, was done through the military. It was a a sort of half-crazy scheme carried out in a stupid, blundering way. They had to move these missiles across the Soviet Union and, and load them on freighters in the Black Sea port of Odessa. They had to pretend, they gave the whole operation the name Operatia Anadir, which is the name of a river in Siberia to imply that that's what this was all about. They equipped the thousands of Soviet soldiers going on these freighters to Cuba with warm clothing. So it would look as if they were going to Siberia rather than the tropics. They described them as advisors and gave them all plaid shirts, flannel shirts. And these poor bastards found themselves below decks on these ships, with the temperatures around a hundred degrees Fahrenheit for days, and the notion that this operation could be carried out and not discovered, as these ships trundled thousands of miles <laughs> across the open ocean, it was a half-crazed scheme. And the military, I'm sure, they had their doubts. Uh, we know they had their doubts. The top military, but again, they saluted and said, "Yes, sir," just like the political advisors. And one of the crazy notions which was uh, which was put forward by uh, Biryuzov, who was the head of Soviet strategic rocket forces, was that palm trees would disguise the missiles, and the Americans, even if they were trying to take pictures, would think what they were seeing were palm trees, not missiles. but that was a crazy idea too
2: and what did Cuba make of these Soviet tourists? Here's Alex von Tunzelman, historian and author of Red Heat, Conspiracy, Murder and the Cold War in the Caribbean.
0: There were about 43,000 Soviet troops on Cuba at this point. The CIA were estimating it as 10,000, again, a huge underestimate, much bigger numbers. And some of them arriving in quite kind of farcical fashion. So, you know, 2,000 tourists supposedly getting off um, a military ship in Havana. It was very quickly noticed that all these tourists were, you know, between certain ages, young men, and they were all wearing two variants on exactly the same kind of khaki shirts and trousers um so you know very peculiar sort of tourists very clearly and i mean this kind of thing was just overwhelmingly reported to the cia of course there were enough informants around and so on that really the americans were very aware that some of this was happening even so they very significantly underestimated um the amount of soviet troops in cuba and also of course the presence of warheads so you know intelligence existed but was very very limited about that but within cuba of course this would have been highly perceivable you know if you have 40,000 plus uh, Russians or Soviets more generally arrive, of course, that is going to be noticed. um, And, you know, they were around. And generally speaking, their reception was very good. Uh, The Cubans got on very well with the Russians, uh, generally speaking, because I think there was a sense, especially with the younger Russian troops, and this was kind of a factor in the whole Soviet-Cuba alliance, is that by this point, the leaders of the Soviet Union were really old men you know they weren't terribly glamorous they weren't very exciting and these new young cubans who seemed much more macho you know much more vital with their big beards and their army fatigues and all of this kind of stuff had really emerged as these kind of great heroes in a lot of the communist world you know they'd been built up as these much more glamorous visual representations of what communism could be so You know, a lot of those young Soviet troops really kind of hero worshipped people like Fidel Castro, Che Guevara um, and so on. And, you know, when they were arriving there, there was a great camaraderie, actually, between those troops and the Cubans. And in a sense, this set up potentially an even more dangerous situation because some of those Soviet commanders there could act without uh, calling back to Moscow. And when they were forming these very close relationships with people like Raul Castro, who they got on very well with, now, of course, there's a huge danger there of miscalculation, effectively, of them taking action without even asking Khrushchev, the Presidium, everything that's going on in Moscow, what to do next. So, you know, this really presents a very great danger for Khrushchev. He's taken an enormous risk by sending these people there and, you know, them getting on very, very well with the Castros.
2: So... With as many as 40,000 Soviet soldiers sweating on the shores of Cuba and many Cubans aware of the military buildup, let's return to the early meetings of XCOM. Here's Mark again.
3: What's interesting about JFK's early response, and this is also true of his brother Robert Kennedy, who's Attorney General, so as head of the Justice Department, not really supposed to be involved in foreign policy, but once the Bay of Pigs turns out to be such a disaster... JFK brings them into foreign policy. It was, just, it was basically a, when things go wrong, the only people who can rely on are family. So he turns to family, he turns to Bobby. So Bobby gets very involved in foreign policy, especially Cuba thereafter. If you look at the initial response of the Kennedys to the news about missiles in Cuba, it's clear and pretty hard line. If you look at the records of those first two XCOM meetings, John F. Kennedy's position is clear. He believes that he must respond militarily that what the Soviets have done is unacceptable to to deploy missiles, nuclear missiles in Cuba so close to uh, the United States, and that he has to take strong, robust action. I think one major reason he thinks that is because of two statements he released back in early September. On September the 4th and September the 13th, 1962, he released two statements in response to the public political debate over the Soviet military buildup in Cuba that everyone knew was taking place didn't know about the missiles. What he says is, look, the Republicans are making a meal of this. Uh, They're just trying to exploit this issue for political gain. But really, there's nothing for us to worry about because no nuclear missiles are going in. Now, of course, if nuclear missiles do go in, then I will take strong, robust action. But he says that, I'm not thinking the missiles will go in. But it's interesting that one of the first things he does during the missile crisis is he gets an aid to go back and check exactly what he had committed himself to in those statements. But basically, he had tied his own credibility to a robust response to a Soviet missile deployment in Cuba, should it take place. So his initial position on the, on that first day, the 16th of October, is we must respond militarily. And, the, and there are three options. There's an airstrike we could carry out on the missile sites, a more general airstrike on those Soviet missile sites, but other... Soviet military equipment and installations too. And then thirdly, and this was the kind of the super hawk option, which was full-scale invasion. So that was his position that the US had to respond militarily. I should say that's what most XCOM advisors felt at the start of the missile crisis. What's really interesting is if you look at what Bobby Kennedy said, he doesn't say too much on that first day, but when he does speak, he makes it clear that he is actually for the super hawk option, which is the invasion. JFK himself was probably veering towards the the airstrike, sort of general airstrike, but Bobby was for the Superhawk option of a full-scale invasion. For many years, historians were very reliant, because of the paucity of sources decades ago, very reliable on Bobby Kennedy's memoir on the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was called 13 Days, which uh, was written in the final days of his life because he was assassinated in 68, and it uh, was published posthumously, the end of the 1960s. And he basically portrays himself in that book as the kind of hero of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the one who stood up to the hawks in XCOM, people who were arguing for military action and made the case for a naval blockade. What he doesn't mention is that at the start of the crisis, he was a super hawk himself and for invasion.
2: I wonder, Mark, could you give us a sense of the sort of language being used by the super hawks in these XCOM meetings? How ferocious was this position they were advocating?
3: So the Superhawks were various people, but included the generals, it included the CIA. It included famously uh, Dean Acheson, who was a veteran Democrat, acknowledged as an expert on foreign policy. He had been President Harry Truman's Secretary of State at the end of the 1940s, early 50s, and just a key architect behind the whole post-war policy of containment, of containing Soviet aggression. He is a, a hawk. On that first day, there's one advisor who played a key role, and that is Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defence, regarded by many as a villain on the Vietnam War. He's seen as having pushed Lyndon Johnson into war in Vietnam in 1965, and that turned out to be a disaster. If he's a villain on that, he's a hero on the missile crisis, because he is the official who, on the 16th of October, the first day of the missile crisis, comes up with the idea of, well, what about, as as an independent policy option, what about a naval blockade? Let's establish ships around Cuba that will stop the Soviets sending in any more missiles and it'll give us time to try and negotiate the removal of the missiles that are already there. That converts a debate over, you know, what military option should we take to debate over do we go with the military options like an airstrike or do we go with the blockade? So that's a really important contribution by, by McNamara. What the Hawks like Atchison and uh, and others say is the problem with the blockade option is it doesn't deal with a problem at hand. It doesn't remove the missiles that are already there. The advantage with an airstrike is you can actually deal with a problem at hand. You can actually destroy and therefore remove the missiles that are already there. So that is the argument that the Hawks made again and again. In terms of the sort of language, it did get very, very feisty, testy. There's a meeting, we have a recording of this, between JFK and his generals on the 19th of October, so that's the the fourth day of the missile crisis, where they're really sort of disrespectful to Kennedy. And Kennedy's actually, I think, very impressive in that meeting because they're just saying, well, let's just go ahead and bomb Cuba. We must bomb Cuba. This is unacceptable. And what Kennedy is saying by that point, JFK is saying to him, look, you need to look at this in a broader political context, i.e. you've got to consider what the Soviet response will be. If we go ahead and bomb Cuba... Could that trigger war over Berlin? Could the Soviets move on West Berlin? We need to think about that. We do want to avoid getting into a war. We do want to avoid getting into a nuclear war. So by that point, Kennedy, JFK has come around to the blockade, and he says, so I think we should go for a blockade. And it's Curtis LeMay, famously haw- hawkish figure, says to him, I think, you know, really disrespectfully, that's appeasement. And Kennedy says, well, what did you say to me? And LeMay says, you're in a fix, you're in a mess. And Kennedy says to him, well, in that case, you're in it with me, aren't you? And when he leaves the room, the generals continue to talk, and the recording continues. And it's like a scene out of Doctor Strangelove, the, the, the movie Doctor Strangelove. They're just unbelievably bellicose. So it's to Kennedy's credit that he keeps an open mind and is prepared to switch from his early support for an airstrike to a blockade, which he's done by about the 18th of October, so three three or four days in. But it's also commendable that he has the backbone to stand up to his generals and not be pushed into taking military action, which he thinks is wrong. So that's another commendable aspect of his leadership. And a key, in terms of, you know, the, the Hawke's argument, a key devel- development for JFK is when he is advised, which comes at a number of points during the first week, but including uh, on the 21st of October, when he's informed, for example, by Walter Sweeney, who's an Air Force uh, official, that even if an airstrike went perfectly even if it went as well as it possibly could, 54% of all the missiles that are there will be destroyed. That's if an airstrike goes as well as it can be. Some of them will be hidden, some of them will miss. So JFK knew by that point that even if he goes for the airstrike, it's not going to destroy all the missiles that are there. The Soviets will still have missiles that they can use in a counter-response. And for Kennedy, that's a nail in the coffin for the Hawks' argument. So... You know, McNamara plays an important role in introducing the idea of the blockade, and JFK uh, is attracted to that idea, Bobby Kennedy as well. What's also really important is some officials, including George Ball, who's a State Department official, begin to make a moral argument. What they say is, you know, we, we, the United States, can't go for an airstrike because this will be the moral equivalent of Japan's bombing of Pearl Harbor. That comparison's made again and again. And JFK is persuaded by that, and so is Bobby Kennedy. So the Kennedys come around to the idea that a blockade is better than an airstrike because, one, it means that the US won't be compared to Japan and its attack on Pearl Harbor. It will stop the Soviets sending in more missiles, the blockade. It will give a window of opportunity for, the, for, the, for a negotiated settlement. So for all of those reasons, JFK decides that he's going to go for the blockade. And I'd say certainly by the 20th, That's the fifth day of the crisis. He's definitely decided he's going to go with the blockade. And then it's just a case of him announcing that to the American people and the world, which is what he does on the 22nd of October.
2: As Mark just mentioned, Kennedy ultimately elected to establish a naval quarantine. This was a ring of US ships around Cuba, which would effectively block the delivery of any further quote, offensive weapons and associated materiel from the Soviets. While Kennedy's decision crucially avoided an outright declaration of war, Khrushchev would later call this action, quote, outright piracy. Let's hear more about the moment the world found out about it.
3: JFK knew that once he'd made the decision, he needed to communicate that to the American people through a radio and television address, which he does 7pm uh, Eastern Standard Time on, the, on Monday the 22nd of October 1962. This is the moment that the first week of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the secret private phase comes to an end and the public phase starts because the American people learn about the missiles in Cuba, the American press, and indeed the whole world. And this was a key moment. Kennedy had to make a case persuasively that what the Soviets had done necessitated the action he was taking, which was to impose a naval blockade around Cuba. What he... Says in that speech is basically two things. One, he tells the American people in the world, I need to, I need to let you know there are Soviet nuclear missiles in Cuba. And two, I'm responding with a, a naval blockade. It's interesting when he cites in that speech the reasons for it. He does mention those two statements in September, back on September 4th and 13th, when he committed himself to take strong action should the Soviets put missiles in Cuba. But what's also really interesting is he he emphasizes the lessons of the 1930s, the failures of appeasement, the failure to stand up to uh, Nazi aggression. For him, the lesson was clear, you need to be tough and resolute in standing up to aggressive dictators. So that was something which had intellectually preoccupied him in the late 1930s. And he'd written his first book, Why England Slept On That Whole Issue. And it's interesting that at this, the gravest moment in the Cold War, the gravest moment in his presidency, he goes back to that historical moment, in the late 1930s, and that clearly has uh, influenced his thinking on this um, on, on on the Cuban missile crisis. The part of the speech that people tend to overlook, which is really interesting, is the final part of it, where he he speaks uh, directly to the Cuban people. She says the speech has been carried to by special radio facilities. But basically, if you read that speech, he says, "Well, you know, lots of times in the past, the Cuban people have risen up." and overthrown dictators and tyrants. And he basically encourages the Cuban people to do that, to rise up and and overthrow Castro. He wants to get rid of the missiles in Cuba, but for him, the optimal outcome of the Cuban missile crisis will be the removal of the missiles from Cuba, but also the removal of Castro. And I think that's a weakness in his position because really his exclusive focus should have been on getting rid of the missiles, given the seriousness of, of the situation. So that is it. That's, uh, that's the start of the second week of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the public phase. Everyone knows that Kennedy knows there are missiles in Cuba, including Nikita Khrushchev.
2: The secret was out, and the world was made aware of the standoff. In the letter from Kennedy to Khrushchev on the 23rd of October, day 8 of the crisis jfk wrote of his concern that both leaders would quote show prudence and do nothing to allow events to make the situation more difficult to control than it already is he added his hope that khrushchev would quote issue immediately the necessary instructions to your ships to observe the terms of the quarantine how much do we know about khrushchev's reaction
1: my reading of what I know about his reaction was he was scared, but he was relieved because what Kennedy had announced was not an attack to get to destroy the missiles, not an ultimatum, but simply a quarantine. He didn't even use the word naval blockade, which would have been officially an act of war, but a quarantine of Cuba to prevent anything else from getting in and I think Khrushchev took that as a invitation. To be and to sound even more aggressive, which is what he did. His first reaction was a very tough letter to Kennedy.
2: Who are the people he has around him at this stage of the diplomacy beginning in the middle of this crisis? Who are the people who are who have his ear, who are supporting him?
1: Well, he's meeting with his with what was called before and afterwards the Politburo, the Politburo of the Communist Party. It, under Khrushchev, it was called the Presidium, and it had you know the other. Communist Party leaders. Uh, he was also w- consulting with uh, Gormiko, the foreign minister. He was communicating with Debrinian in Washington, who was eventually doing some of the very tough negotiating with Bobby Kennedy. Debrinian had not been told. And that was very interesting because they figured if he didn't know, <laughs> he, he could lie more convincingly that there was nothing there. This episode is brought to you by Indeed.
2: by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. As William mentioned, Khrushchev's own letter on the 23rd of October took a firm stance. He wrote that the US blockade could, quote, "...only be regarded as undisguised interference in the internal affairs of the Republic of Cuba, the Soviet Union and other states." The Soviet premier concluded with his hope that the United States government would quote, "display wisdom and renounce the actions pursued by you which may lead to catastrophic consequences for world peace." We'll return to this exchange of letters shortly as it was crucial to the second phase of the crisis. But I also want to pause a moment to hear more about what the blockade meant for the people of Cuba. It may have been a political manoeuvre deployed at the highest level, but the quarantine also had significant impact on people's everyday lives. Here's Alex on Fidel Castro's response to Kennedy's declaration.
0: So Fidel Castro uh, had been extremely worried about the US finding out that he uh, had accepted Soviet nuclear missiles in Cuba, you know, all the installations that were there uh, for those missiles. And it was proved pretty much right. When Khrushchev found out that the Americans knew and the Americans responded very strongly, he was extremely freaked out by it and realised, actually, that Fidel Castro's worries about keeping this deal secret had been rather justified, that the Americans had this very, very strong response immediately. So Fidel, of course, though, had been preparing for that because he had understood that the American response would be very strong to the missiles. He was expecting that. So Cuba at that time had, he had mobilized an extraordinary 400,000 troops. So that was all of Cuba's sort of regular troops, all of the reserves, that's 170,000 people, um, and then various kind of militia groups and so on that they had. And so do you think the population of Cuba at this point was a little over 7 million, um, 400,000 people mobilized? I mean, everybody would have known somebody who was mobilized Um for this. So really Cuba was on a state of absolutely maximum alert and he sent his crucial commanders around the country to kind of be in different stations. So uh, Che Guevara was sent um, to the north um, and Juan Almeida elsewhere and Raul Castro was sent down to Mayori and Santiago to Cuba in the south. So really what we're seeing from Fidel Castro there was a very strong preparation for a war footing. Uh, That was very much where Cuba was in terms of its reaction.
2: And what about the effect on the people of Cuba?
0: People of Cuba would have been highly aware of the danger and escalation because it was really all that was being talked about. And every family, every village would have known people who were mobilised. It was happening in every possible corner of the country. So, everyone was very aware. And, you know, much like, I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis for a lot of people who did live through it, even if they were very small or children at the time, their memories of it are often very, very strong. Certainly when I was researching the book, everyone I spoke to who even had been a child had this very strong memory of, you know, nuclear drills, if they're in the event of a nuclear strike and so on. And it was exactly the same in Cuba. People were extremely worried about a nuclear attack. And I mean, there were even situations where stories were going around of, parents smearing their children in olive oil in the hope that that on their skin would repel uh, radiation. So you can definitely see that there was a high level of anxiety um, among the population. And also there a high level of preparedness. I think the Cuban government had been extremely aware that accepting the missiles put them in a very dangerous situation. So there had been a pretty high degree of preparation and mobilization in the armed forces and also in a civilian context. From a Cuban perspective, the blockade is just another stage in this journey, really. The point of the blockade from the American point of view was that Americans believed that the Cubans had missile launchers and missile sites set up, but did not yet have the nuclear warheads present in Cuba. That was what was very much the belief at the time, the understanding in the American government. Now, we know now, much later, because Fidel Castro decided to tell the world about this in the 1990s, That in fact, there were already nuclear warheads in Cuba. Um, If the Americans had known this, almost certainly there would have been a war. They would have taken an extremely different attitude, but they didn't know that. So in fact, the Cuban nuclear warheads were already there, really quite a large number of them, absolutely enormous destructive power, some of which could have reached um, major American cities, not, you know, of course, Miami in the South and so forth, but actually all the way up to places like New York could quite possibly have been just about in the range of those missiles. So They could have hit a huge amount of the United States had they wished to. And the destructive power of those missiles was equivalent to about 4,000 times what was dropped on Hiroshima at the end of World War II. So we are talking about an absolutely enormous nuclear arsenal. So from the point of view of the Cuban administration, those were already in place. Um, That situation, the die was already cast in those terms. The blockade was a sign that America was taking this extremely seriously and gearing up another level. But I think by this point, the Cuban leaders, particularly Fidel Castro personally, was very much set on, grimly set on, a path to destruction. He really did believe that Cuba would be invaded or nuked itself, and that this was effectively the outcome of not only the deal they'd made to accept the missiles, but the deal specifically to keep them secret. He thought that was a highly likely outcome. So in a sense, you know, when the blockade happened, that's just, that's another step on that road towards this kind of national martyrdom.
2: Following Kennedy's declaration on the 22nd of October, day seven of the 13 days, the crisis suddenly exploded out of secret pacts and clandestine meetings and onto the world stage. What effect did this have in the West? Mark takes us further into the social fallout of the President's television address.
3: It's a really interesting question because it's. Easy to think about the missile crisis, and understandably so. It's essentially a political phenomenon. But you're right, it affects people at the grassroots. How do they respond? And basically, there's tremendous fear. They took a poll the day after. A a, a survey was taken on the 23rd of October, uh, which showed that one in five Americans thought there would be World War III. There's a story of a, a man with a family planning a course for Canada, I think on by boat, to leave the country. There are stories of families going into supermarkets and buying huge amounts of food and cleaning detergent to prepare themselves for a major crisis. I think at one store opener said, it's crazy. What are they going to do? Sort of clean up after the bomb. So in a nutshell, there's tremendous fear. I mean, JFK is, is, is a very good communicator. And I think he tries to be as reassuring to the American people as he can. But basically, there's tremendous fear that this crisis is going to result in World War III and uh, a nuclear war at that.
2: Looking to the other side of the Iron Curtain, what was the reaction to the crisis in the USSR?
1: I don't know just how nervous the Soviet populace became. They didn't know nearly as much as the American population knew. The American population was mighty scared. I was a graduate student at the time at Columbia University, and one of my professors was Zbigniew Brzezinski, who later became Jimmy Carter's national security advisor. And I remember he gave a talk, and we, we were we were all sitting on the edge of our seats, waiting to hear whether we would, would be blown up. So there was plenty of fear, at least in our country, and I think plenty in, in the Soviet Union, too. We don't have public opinion polling carried out during this crisis. We don't know exactly how alarmed uh, his colleagues were, even though when they ousted him from power two years later, they were pretty devastating in their criticisms of him, including this, they called this a brain scheme. Uh, so we, I think we must assume that they were very nervous, very nervous about this. Uh, there are a couple of fascinating Uh, little um, anecdotes that reveal what was going on. At the height of the crisis, at one point, when an American letter, one of them from Kennedy, was delivered to the Soviet foreign ministry, the American who delivered it when he was admitted found a guy in the corridor wearing a gas mask, a Soviet diplomat in the corridor of the foreign ministry wearing a World War II gas mask if it wasn't world war 1 it was an old it was an old contraption and this was i think pretty clearly a way of showing the americans that we russians are ready if you if you push us too far we will go nuclear but it was again a stu- <laughs> a stupid crazy symbol and if it really meant anything it maybe meant that the diplomat himself was scared but i think it was more of a of a Petyomkin village gas mask show, so to speak. Another story about the behavior of Soviet diplomats. I heard later from American diplomats in Moscow that they suddenly began receiving telephone calls from their Soviet counterparts who had never called them before and had been, you know, coolly polite when they met. And suddenly they were calling them up on the phone and saying, how's it going? How are you feeling? How's the wife? How are the children? Gushingly polite as a way of signaling that they were well intentioned and hoped to solve this thing before it was too late.
2: Could I hear some more of your recollections of that time?
1: More of my recollections at the time? (laughs) Well, this was many, many years before I even thought of writing a biography of Khrushchev. So to me, I, I knew nothing about him except he seemed an explosive kind of character. I had gone to elementary school and then junior high school during the age when we were taught how to hide under our desks in case of nuclear war, as if that would have helped. I remember I lived in Manhattan in New York City. Across the street, there was a building that had a sign on it directing us to a bomb shelter in the basement in case of nuclear war. So there were, you know, on the surface, it looked as if, well, you know, we'll handle it if it comes. But people knew that these these precautions were basically a joke and we would we would be done for.
2: So, with as many as one in five Americans believing that they were on the verge of World War III and diplomatic relations between Kennedy and Khrushchev at breaking point, how could the world leaders begin to bridge this treacherous chasm?
3: So around the same time as JFK gives that speech on the 22nd of October, his administration... Dispatches a letter to Khrushchev. It's actually, I think, handed over by Dean Rusk, who's Secretary of State, to the Soviet ambassador. But anyway, it's related to Khrushchev. It's a letter from Kennedy to Khrushchev, just stating his position and saying, you know, what we've done is the minimum response uh, that's required in order to get the uh, missiles out of Cuba, and uh, and uh, basically encouraging Khrushchev not to do anything drastic that might result that that might result in war. That is the start of an important part of the second week of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is a correspondence between Kennedy and Khrushchev. So I think if you're thinking about the second week of the Cuban Missile Crisis, there are a number of strands to it. You've got Kennedy is continuing to meet on a daily basis with his ex-com advisors, so they're con- continuing to discuss the is- issues as they emerge. Secondly, you have a, actually a, a sort of secret dialogue. So, for example, Bobby Kennedy is used by JFK as his secret envoy, he goes to see the Soviet ambassador in Washington, Natalie Dabrinen on the 23rd of October, also the 27th of October. That's important. But then the other thing you have, uh, the third thing you have, is this this correspondence between Kennedy and Khrushchev. And so 22nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th of October, they're writing to each other. And essentially what each of them is saying is it's your fault, we're not backing down. You know, uh, so what Kennedy says is, you know, what you've done is totally unacceptable, provocative, dangerous. Putting missiles in Cuba—that's unacceptable. And what Khrushchev says is, look, putting a naval blockade around Cuba is uh, is, a, is an act of war. And I think you're only doing it because of the so that you can look tough before the congressional elections in November. So basically, they just dig their heels in and don't offer any kind of compromise. It's clear if you're going to get out of the missile crisis, there needs to be compromise. And that all changes on the 26th of October.
2: Let's pause on the 26th of October, day 11 of this 13-day crisis. We've already heard how Khrushchev's early letters to Kennedy following his television address were bristling. Yet, by the 11th day, Khrushchev was seeing things differently.
1: By October 25th, Khrushchev was beginning to move toward a compromise and to imagine concessions that he might make. And he eventually did on October 26th what he said in a letter that gave signs of having been written by or dictated by him personally under stress and quite anxious. What he said was, if you promise not to invade Cuba and to uh, topple Castro, we will pull the missiles out of Cuba. And I think it's important to say that if, as I said earlier, Khrushchev imagined this whole scheme as producing a triumph that would buttress his standing in the world and at home. He found himself on October 26th, imagining his retreat as a different kind of triumph. That is, he would say that he had saved Cuba, because the Americans would have promised not to invade, and he had saved the world from the danger of a nuclear war. So that's That's what I think was going through his mind during that week, at least through Thursday.
2: But as Khrushchev moved towards compromise, in Cuba, Fidel Castro was considering a more dangerous direction.
0: Fidel Castro really formed this incredibly fatalistic mindset around the crisis. He believed, you know, which I don't think Khrushchev had ever fully appreciated until, you know, halfway through the crisis, really. Fidel understood what he had done by taking those missiles on and by keeping that deal secret which was effectively to seal Cuba's destruction it was an absolutely enormous deal for him and he kind of framed this in his own mind as this potential for a sort of glorious martyrdom that effectively cuba would be destroyed and this would reveal you know he uses all these phrases like the perfidy of the imperialists um you know it would reveal what America was, these, all this talk of freedom and democracy and so on, um, this destruction would somehow reveal that to the world. And I think it's kind of quite fascinating to get into this mindset because he had always been, you know, long before his supposed conversion to socialism, he'd always been pushing this kind of patria umuerte, you know, country or death, this slogan and really this kind of very, very strong nationalistic view. Now, that's one thing when you do that for yourself. It's quite another thing when you adopt that on the part of a whole country who have not all agreed, frankly, that they would like to be martyred for this quite vague cause, which is quite unclear. So it was sort of an extraordinary decision to make. And I think fairly horrific, honestly, to look at it close up, the potential to get Cuba just completely destroyed. But I think that was the decision that he'd made in his mind. We can see he did take it seriously. I mean, very, very reluctant to take missiles and to keep that deal a secret, but he had done it. And once he'd made that decision, that in his mind was then the way that was going to happen. So what we can see is a very serious preparation that he'd made for war. And then during the crisis itself, now, one of the absolute key features of the missile crisis is the communications were so bad and so slow between everybody. So things would happen. And then it would take 12 hours to get a message, you know, across the Atlantic effectively from either Cuba or Washington to Moscow. And all of these were going backwards and forwards at such a slow rate that actually things were changing before the messages had arrived and there was quite a lot of events kind of tripping over each other almost. So the key turning point from the point of view of Cuba is really around the 26th of October. Now, at this point, Khrushchev, of course, had received this intelligence report saying that Kennedy was gearing up for a full amphibious invasion of Cuba the removal of Castro he was absolutely horrified by that you know wrote to Kennedy that was all going on while that was also you know then there was this second letter when he received more information that was more reassured and a bit more bullish you know this was all going on in the kind of you know Soviet American arena Uh, but at the same time Afternoon of 26th of October, Fidel Castro in Cuba went to meet uh, General Issa Pliev, who was the Soviet commander um, in Cuba. Um, Fidel told him that he had decided to shoot down any American planes that they could hit. Uh, They were going to fire against these low-level flights, um, didn't have access to the surface-to-air missiles at that point, so it had to be conventional weapons. Pliev reported to him that the Soviet forces in Cuba were now ready for war. But what they didn't know, because the message hadn't arrived yet, is that Khrushchev now believed that the Americans weren't about to invade. So they were operating uh, fidel castro and isapliev on the basis that they thought american forces would land within the next 24 to 72 hours or so and they decided between themselves that they would strike back against the americans they were going to fight um so this was all happening khrushchev did not know this was happening fidel obviously at that point made some kind of decision in his mind that this was the end this was going to be the showdown, Armageddon. So he left that meeting with Pliev and he went directly to see the the, uh, Soviet ambassador in Cuba, Alexander Alexeyev, and asked him to help draft this letter in Russian to Khrushchev to sort of say what decision he'd made. So the two of them sat there, Alexeyev and Fidel Castro, with beer and sausages, um, and they went through at least 10 different drafts of this letter. They were really trying to get the language precise, and it was very difficult because Alexei spoke, spoke extremely good Spanish, but not completely perfect. And of course, you can never perfectly translate the precise idea. So Fidel's letter is this extraordinary document, which sort of, you know, says basically that Cuba is ready to be destroyed. So Alexei, I've even asked him at one point, do you actually mean what it seems you mean that the USSR should in fact launch a first nuclear strike against the US? And Fidel then came back with saying, well, I don't want to say that directly. But, you know, we shouldn't wait for the Americans to initiate the first strike and decide that Cuba should be wiped off the earth. So this was sort of a very subtle distinction, basically. He was trying to convey to Khrushchev that concern for Cuba should not guide his policy, that Cuba was ready to sacrifice itself in the event of a first nuclear strike. So, you know, if the Americans occupied Cuba, the Soviet Union, in his opinion, should launch a first strike Um, regardless of the consequences of that for Cuba, that's what should happen. So in Fidel's mind, this letter was a kind of declaration of Cuba's willingness to perform this supreme sacrifice, to sacrifice itself for the name of this cause, a decision he had taken, of course, privately on behalf of the country, that it should face that. And You know, that was what he believed was necessary. It's it's a very shocking letter. But, you know, it shows why he had taken so seriously the taking of the missiles and the keeping of the steel secret in the first place. But he had, by doing that, taken this extraordinary risk on part of the Cuban people. Um, As he pointed out, and he was correct, um, the US had also stationed missiles in other countries, you know, Britain, Turkey, Italy, various other places. But those places had not concealed from the people that this had been done. Whereas in fact, Fidel had concealed from the Cuban people that he had taken this decision. So it was a very, very frightening decision. um, and this letter was quite extreme. So even though they kind of, you know, they went through this letter, Fidel and Alexeyev many, many times, um, weren't entirely happy with it. The next morning, you know, extremely early, I think it was kind of 6.40 AM Havana time, um, Fidel's letter went into this laborious transmission system to get to Moscow. Um, Alexeyev added a covering letter which summarized the views as best he could um, in Russian. And so it would take 12 hours for that to get to Moscow. And during that time, the situation changed again. 27th of October, of course, Rudolf Anderson, uh, in his U-2 overflight in Cuba was shot down. And that would change the situation again and change everything
2: with tremendous hubris and macho posturing on all sides, and Fidel Castro prepared to sacrifice Cuba in an ultimate act of martyrdom on the world stage, how was this crisis resolved? That's the question we'll be exploring next time in our fourth and final episode. This episode was written and researched by me, Eleanor Evans, and produced by Brittany Colley. Thanks to the historians who joined me for this episode, Alex von Tunzelman, Mark White and William Taubman. Additional checks by Daniel Adamson.
3: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.